scripture this morning is out of Song of Solomon, chapter five. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Robin. So little Johnny was called in by his dad for a chat, and his dad said, I'm going to tell you about the birds and the bees. And Johnny immediately began to bawl, cry. Uh, His father was confused, said, what's the matter? He said, well, when I turned 10, you called me in for a talk and told me that the Easter money wasn't real. When I turned 11, you called me in for a talk and said that Santa Claus isn't real. And now if you tell me that sex isn't real too, I have nothing left to live for. Kids, kids know more than ever. Are they getting the right message? Uh, Bertrand Russell is a famous 20th century atheist philosopher, and he once said this, the worst feature of the Christian religion is his attitude towards sex. That's strong opposition. But it's pretty simple where that comes from. In the battle of worldviews, the humanist says that the highest good is to do what I wanna do, personal freedom. The highest value is being able to operate any way I want to, when I want to, with who I want to. I can with my career, I can with my money, I can with the rest of my life, and so sexually that should happen as well. It's my choice, and I should be able to do what I want. Sex is not seen as a moral issue whatsoever to most in our world. The only relevant issue is consent, and as long as everybody agrees, then No one else can say a word and everybody does whatever they want to do. Uh, From that vantage point, the Christian view of sex can seem oppressive. It can seem repressive as if Christianity views sex itself as a negative thing. And there are numbers of people who have left Christianity claiming that this is the exact message that they heard while they were in the church. Um, Sex is bad. Sex is a necessary duty for married couples so that the species can move along so that we can have baby baby dedications, right? Uh, Anything else brings shame and guilt and leaving Christianity is the only way to kind of exercise those inhibitions and what happens at the end of the day is that they heard the wrong message. To many in our culture, God and the Bible and faith are seen as anti-sex. God is seen as the restrictor plate of sexuality. To limit behavior in this way is seen as a violation of basic human rights by a lot of people. We want options. We want all of them. We want gray, right? As a matter of fact, we want green. We want the green light. But God seems to be black and white, and it sure seems like he limits freedom. And so God becomes the ultimate blocker to sexual fulfillment. And the, the question today is, is that the case? Is God restrictive? Does God limit our freedom? And let's, let's start at square one with this. Uh, if I'm going to get through a forest that I've never been through before, then I'm going to need some help. I'm going to need somebody that's gone down the path before me and gotten through already. And God is that guide when it comes to sex. God created it. We don't know what choices will bring us pain when it comes to this subject and what choices will bring us ultimate joy, but God does. And so God can teach us how to cross the street of our sexuality and still live to tell the tale. 
And so in the scriptures, God gives us incredible wisdom. He gives us incredible insight into the subject of sex. And one of the things we learn is that there's an interconnectedness between form and freedom. And the two dance together. And by form, I mean structure, and I mean restraint, and I mean boundaries, and I mean control. And those are the things that the conservative nature inside of us grab a hold of. And uh, they, it says things like, don't touch, don't taste, close your eyes so you don't see that. And that conservative restraint is supposed to do a waltz with freedom. Freedom means openness and choice and flourishing with no limits. It's the liberal nature inside of us that says, um, yes, touch, taste, take in all the sights, enjoy with abundance and Biblical wisdom is that when it comes to sexuality, God gave us both, but they have to dance together to be the most productive. Our sexuality is breast expressed in boundaries and constraint, and at the very same time, by unleashing and desiring and letting joy Flourish. Now that's really wordy, and so I, I've helped you today. I'm going to try to help you with a picture. And the picture is that sex is like a fire. You can set a fire pretty easily just about anywhere. Uh, I have a set of logs here, kind of shaped in a fire kind of setting. And all I need is, is a match or some tinder, uh, not the phone kind of tinder, the real kind of tinder, uh, to uh, set that on fire. And that fire will be enjoyable. It will keep us warm for a few minutes. We might even get a marshmallow roasted on this fire. But before long, it won't be long before we're not enjoying Enjoying this fire, but we are running from it. Why? Because it doesn't have any constraints. It's in the middle of the stage. It can go wherever it wants to go. And the fire that was originally lit to be a benefit ends up turning into a raging inferno that destroys everything in its path. And we are running from it, pulling fire alarms as we go. Thankfully, there is a way to enjoy. Yeah, you can kill the, we don't need to burn the church down. Yeah. Uh, there is a way we can enjoy a fire and still live to tell about it. It's by putting boundaries around the fire, uh, a fireplace or a hearth or a stove. This is our best uh, representation today, okay? And um, when we put a fire in those boundaries, they become the way the fire can flourish. They, they become the way that the fire can be as hot as ever, but at the same time controlled and nobody dies and nobody runs away screaming. And a structured fire can give us all the delights that we're after, not just once, but over and over and over again. And the picture in front of you is, is helpful because here's the message of the Bible when it comes to our sexuality. It is this, keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. That's it. The picture comes from Proverbs 6. And in that text, the poet is talking about sex outside of the boundaries with an adulteress or with a prostitute. And he says this, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can anyone walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? And the obvious answer is no, no, you can't do that. The fire needs to be in its rightful place. In your hands is not the best choice because the consequences are obvious. And just like that, sex needs 
boundaries, and that's form, that's constraint, that's control. But within those boundaries, God does something amazing. In today's scripture, Song of Solomon 5.1, it's in the very middle of this book called Song of Solomon, and there are 111 verses before it, and there are 111 verses after it, and there's something important about this text right in the middle of this eye-popping book about sex in marriage. Did you know that Jewish children were not allowed to read the Song of Solomon until they were adults? Because there's a trampoline. There's a few of them, right? And it gets jumped on several times. And in 5.1 is one of those circumstances. A married man and woman have come together, and the text is being euphemistic. Um, It expresses this as they are in the garden, and there's a wink to the reader, right? But the thing is, there's no shame. There's no guilt. There's no regret. It's unreserved. It's unashamed. And then at the very end of 5.1, we get this line. It says, eat, O, o friends, and drink. Drink your fill, O lovers. And so what we have is a third voice appearing in the text. And it's not coincidence that the third voice appears in this scene. It's the epicenter of the poem, right? If there's any message in the book, it is in this verse. And someone from the outside comes in and speaks, and commentators will tell us that this outside voice is God Himself. And so God shows up in the middle of the action, as it were, and throws in His opinion. And what will He say? What will He say when He finds what He finds? Will it be horror? Will he be surprised? I never. Will there be anger or disgust? Shame on you kids. What will he say? What he says is the same as Genesis 1 and 2. When the crowning achievement of all of creation is two naked human beings, and God says, it is, what's the word? Good. It is good. He says here, eat, O friends, and drink. God is raising his glass to these two lovers. Be drunk with love. Love, by the way, you might want to uh, cap your uh, husband's ears, means more than love. Uh, It means caresses. It means, we could read it this way, drink your fill of the caresses of love. And so there's an emphasis on physical touches. God is saying, good for you. This is the way I designed it. Make it as hot as you can. There's a reason that Song of Solomon isn't material for kids at bedtime. And that's it. God loves sex. He created it. He knows more than we do about it. He's put boundaries in place, boundaries of marriage between a man and a woman so that we won't kill ourselves with this powerful fire that has every potential to rage out of control if it's not in the proper boundaries. And that's the lesson today. If you don't hear anything else, that's it, okay? But maybe... Maybe you've stumbled in today and maybe you have a different view. Maybe, maybe this is new and these, there are some camps that people come from that are common when we start talking about this subject. The first place is that people come from a camp that might say sex is evil. 
sex is evil. Most outside the church are convinced that this is the Christian view of things. And it's not hard to see why, because a lot of Christian preaching is so negative. We are, we are full of warnings. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Keep yourself pure. Wait for marriage. All of those with good reason, right? Because those are, we are emphasizing the boundaries that God has set. But we can go overboard with that message and it can be misconstrued. It can be twisted into the idea that sex is bad altogether. And some have concluded that the Christian message is sex is dirty, nasty, and vile, and wrong, and so save it for the one you love. That's the message. But that's not the message of Scripture. That's not what we find. What we find in the Bible is an echo of Song of Songs 5.1. God created sex, and he celebrates and encourages it inside the boundaries. Sex is not evil or bad or dirty. What we're going to say is, no, sex is a good gift from God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to a church with a lot of sexual dysfunction going on. And this sex is bad theology had crept into the church. And so Paul addresses it. He doesn't avoid the issue. He kind of takes it on directly. And interestingly enough, he doesn't steer them away from sex entirely. He steers them to it. In verse 3, he says, don't run from, from sex. Run to sex. Run to sex in its right context, which is between a husband and a wife. Because the Corinthians had bought the idea that God was pleased and he was more happy when they avoided sexual activity. They bought this line that sex is evil. Paul doesn't say avoid the physical so you can focus on the spiritual. That's, there's no divide there. He says just the opposite. He says Physical sex between a married man and a married woman is absolutely spiritual. It's good. It's beautiful. It's a gift and can be enjoyed without shame. And further, Paul doesn't just encourage sex. He says it should be frequent. Verse 5, he says, uh, don't deprive one another except for a limited time. There are some skeptics who say that the biblical view of sex is repressed because they argue that the Bible limits sex to procreation. But obviously, Paul doesn't believe that. And as we look through the Bible, we can find at least five different reasons that God has given us this good gift. Number one is obvious kids. That's why we had a baby dedication today, right? Number two is um, comfort. Husband and wife can comfort one another with this gift. Number three is protection. They can keep each other from temptation with this gift. Number four is pleasure. God designed us for thrilling experiences, and this is one of them. And then number five is oneness. Oneness. Uh, there's more going on than just body parts, and that, there's more on that to come. But those five, again, kids, comfort, protection, pleasure, and oneness. And for all of those reasons, Paul says frequently, often. And what we learn is that God takes sex seriously. He wants us to engage often within the boundaries of the hearth of marriage. One of the reasons, we could, we could talk a lot about um, that, but one of the reasons that he pushes us this way is that good sex is hard work. <laughs> and it takes lots of practice, lots, lots of practice. To experience pleasure and joy in sex is a learned skill. It, it doesn't come automatically. Nothing worthwhile ever comes automatically. And so we have to learn. And that takes time. It takes patience. Guys are pretty easy. We just have one button. 
Oh, there it is. Okay, done. All right, very good. Women, not that way. There's not just one button, there are thousands of buttons. And there are thousands of dials and gauges and switches. The controls are what you might find in the cabin of a 747. And you're not really sure how they work. And what's worse is that when you find the switches that work today, they may not be the ones that work next week. That's how it works. And the great news is that we have a God who has put parts of us there on purpose that have no other purpose for existing there other than pleasure. And the best we can understand The reason that they're there is to motivate us to have more sex, and that's what happens when they are engaged properly. And so to get the most out of sex, it has to be in its right environment. It has to be in an exclusive relationship of a man and a woman in marriage. This idea that our culture has that uh, one-night stand or a fling or an affair or just free sex with whoever... um, this idea that that is better than a lifelong committed relationship is simply false. It's a myth. There are stats that bear this out all day long. There was a survey of sexuality called the most authoritative ever by US News and World Report. And they found that of all sexually active people, the most physically pleased and emotionally satisfied were, drum roll, married people. Why is that? See, the myth of our culture is that the single life is the life of great sex. The single life over here, the life of freedom, doing whatever you want with whoever you want is the height of pleasure, but that's a lie. They say in the article, promoting marriage will make for a lot more happy men and women. Married sex beats all else. Do you realize that with a few obvious exceptions that you could probably come up with right off the top of your head, once you are inside this framework, aside from those exceptions, there are no restrictions that God gives us sexually. The world wants to tell you that there are no restrictions over here. The truth is, there are no restrictions here inside the proper boundaries. This ends up in chains. This ends up with God showing up and raising a glass and saying, eat and drink and be filled with love. Good sex is hard work and it takes time to get right. And what I learned from these two pictures is that Satan still lies and God still tells the truth. God isn't even close in the scripture to being anti-sex. And as a matter of fact, God in the scriptures is anti-death. That's what he is. Sexual fire outside of its boundary leads people down the road to death and God wants us to live and that's why the boundaries are in place. Francis DeVos said this, there's a tendency to think of sex as something degrading. It is not. It is magnificent. It's an enormous privilege. But because of that, the rules are tremendously strict and severe. So keep the fire within the marital fireplace and then stoke those fires as hot as you can. The danger is once we've 
uh, overcome the sex is bad idea. The danger is going to the opposite extreme and taking a good thing and making it into a God thing. And some uh, people might come today from this camp that says, not sex is bad, but sex is savior. Sex is savior. It's the opposite of sex is bad, but it's just as dangerous. And in this view, sex is seen as the ultimate good. It's the defining good. Sex becomes the central component to our identity. Sex becomes our religion because we think that engaging in it will bring peace on the earth and goodwill to men, and we think it can save us. Now, that worldview is nothing new. The Bible was written to people who worshiped sex as savior. In the Old Testament, when you come across an Asherah pole, and and sometimes the Jewish people, even they were worshiping at these things, um, those aren't poles at all. (laughs) They're parts of male anatomy, and they were being worshiped as such. In the New Testament, the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth had 1,000 temple prostitutes. You can guess what the worship services looked like in the temple of Aphrodite. And it's the same in our day. It's not the same form, of course, but sex is worshiped everywhere in our culture too. There's a book called Freakonomics, uh, and they write that 100 years ago, prostitution was in more demand than it is today. And on the surface, you think, oh, well, that's a good thing, right? Uh, But only until you know why. They say, they write, demand for prostitution has dramatically decreased. Why? Because in our culture today, almost any woman is willing to have sex with a man for free. Premarital Sex in America is another book that stumbles onto this idea, and they call it the economy of sex, and they say sex today is so cheap, it's so on sale, it's more discounted than it's ever been in history. Why? Because the message of our culture is that sex will liberate us, sex will save us. Losing our inhibitions, losing our religious straitjackets that we've worn so long will make us healthy. All right? We've had about 60 years to try to prove that. Did Woodstock put us on the path to health? How's it going? In our connected virtual world, more and more young men prefer online porn to real dates, to real flesh and blood women. In our connected virtual world, it's resulting in a lack of commitment on the part of men to women and children. And there are 10 million children in the United States today living with unmarried partners. Sexual identity is also wrapped up in this discussion. Part of the sex as God movement is that we have chosen to let sex and sexuality even define who we are instead of the God who created us. And so it's sex, not God, our creator, who, that determines how we see ourselves. And if we are nothing more, as we've talked in the last few weeks, if we're nothing more than a link in uh, molecules to man chain reaction, then, then there's no God. And you're right, there's no design, there's no problem. The structure of the human body is value-free at that point. And so if you wanna change your sex, no problem. Uh, it's like playing with a box of Legos. There are lots of parts and pieces and you can put them together however you want and that's, it's no big deal. But... If we are not machines, if we are created by a God who has created us as perfect and we ran away from that God in rebellion, then what we are is flawed masterpieces. If you take a work of art that needs to be restored, 
an art restorer will look at it and it will say, he will say, what's the best way to restore this painting? The one thing he won't do is stand in front of the painting and say, well, I think the guy in the corner would look a, real, a, not, a lot nicer with a pair of glasses, so I'm going to paint a pair of glasses in there. Or I'm, I think that that hay cart would be uh, better if we had a Ferrari in there, so I'm going to paint a Ferrari in there. I think that um, to, do, to do those kind of things would break the code of the art restorer. Art restorers respect the work. They know that their job is to bring out the artist's original intention. And so they work at cleaning the paint so the vivid colors can come out again. They work at removing the, cu- the clutter. They study the work. They study the painter so that they can carefully get back to the original state of the painting in all of its glory. And we were made by God. He created our sexuality. We sinned and we grubbed up his work and our aim is to restore the flawed masterpiece that we are. Our aim is to clear away the clutter and restore the creator's original intention. Not not to try to change it, but to get it back to what it originally was. That's the message of scripture. Sex is not savior. No, we'll say this. Sex is a sign pointing to the savior. That's what sex is. And the best thing probably to say to the sex is God culture is this, that sex is just a sign and that we are all restorers with the task of restoring God's original design. And when we do that, we get, a, we, we get a picture of who God is and what he's like and what we have in store for our future. What does a sign do? It points to something, right? Think about uh, maybe if you're going to Colorado, you might stop at the sign. That's fun to do, Right? You get all the kids out and the family out and you gather around the sign, you take a picture and you post it to Instagram. We're here in Colorado, woo But are you really? Are you really there? No, you're not where you're really going, right? Are you gonna camp at the base of the sign? No, and say you've been to Colorado. Are you gonna hike around the sign and say that you've climbed a mountain in Colorado? No, you'd be pretty daft if you did that. Um, You never get to experience the real thing if you just hang around the sign, the mountains and the passes and the wildlife. Nobody stays at the sign. Do you know that Jesus taught that marriage is temporary? Marriage and sexuality in this life point to something greater. There's a greater joy that will one day surpass and retire those things. And so sex is a temporal gift and its pleasure can't be seen as the highest of priorities because it's a pleasure that will be eclipsed by a greater one down the line. And the greater one we learn in Romans 5 and Ephesians or Romans 7 and Ephesians 5 is where Paul hints at, at it this way. He says the union of a man and wife is like the union of Christ and his church. In a very mysterious way, Paul even uses that word, in a very mysterious way, sex is just a tiny pointer to that time when we will have a right, pure relationship with the God who created us. And sex is just a parable of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is that we are utterly accepted in spite of our nakedness, in spite of our sin, in spite of all the rebellion that we've had in our lives. We are utterly loved by God because of what Jesus has done for us. And sex, where we stand 
naked and unashamed before another person in the bounds of marriage points to that. So let us live in such a way that we show the world that sex, as good as it is, is not the ultimate satisfaction, but Jesus only. Heaven will really be better than sex. Some of you need to hear that. When you have that incredible experience with your spouse, just remember, heaven will be better than this. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. Number three, this might be a, another camp that people would come from, and the, the camp is sex is just appetite. If you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. And so if you're aroused, you should just have sex with whoever. It's just a need. There's no moral value associated with sexuality. The simple way that this goes is people say, we're just animals. Now, Paul has a critique of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he states the view of the church. They were dysfunctional uh, at that time. And they thought that what you did with your body didn't matter as long as you kept your spirit pure, as if they were separate things. And so whatever itches you have, scratch them and move on. And that approach removes all moral culpability from our sexual choices. But Paul steps in and he says, no, 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 we are made by God. And so our bodies are not disconnected from our souls. We never have sex with just a body. There's so much more going on than just appetite. There's a spiritual dimension at play, whether we recognize it or not. There's a book um, exploring the hookup culture called Unhooked. And this author um, kind of surveys the landscape of what's going on, and she, she just kind of writes what she sees. And one of the readers of her book wrote in and said this, you shouldn't judge the hookup culture. And she replied very wisely. Here's what she said. There are no condoms for the heart. If, if you don't, some of you, if you don't take anything else, take that line. There are no condoms for the heart. Girls shouldn't fool themselves into thinking that just because they're experiencing a physical experience, they won't feel something afterward. And the example that she gives is the number of girls who check their cell phones the day after a hookup, wondering why he hasn't called or texted them. Listen, if sex is just physical, if it's just appetite, then why are you hoping for a text? There's more going on. We can easily tear through the idea that sex is just appetite another way. Our, just ask the sexual assault victim if the pain stops when the sex does. No. Sometimes that pain lasts a lifetime. We are more than physical. We're spiritual. We're emotional. We're psychological creatures too. And that's what God has told us all along. Sex is not appetite. No. Sex is a spiritually covenanted, other-centered act of oneness. And there's a lot there. Let me just say this. Sex is appetite means sex is all about what I want. But when sex is a spiritually covenanted, other-centered act of oneness, then sex is all about others. It's all about the other in my life. It's all about a selfless expression with an other-centered mentality. We transcend body parts and we experience something profoundly deeper and wonderful and mysterious. Paul, in this text, says, 
that that's why sex with a prostitute is wrong. It's not just because she's not your wife. It's because there's more going on. Every sexual act is supposed to be a uniting act. And Paul says that is radically, it's radically dissonant to give your body to somebody to whom you will not also commit your whole life. C.S. Lewis says sex without marriage is like tasting food without swallowing it and digesting it. What's that called? Bulimia. And it's a disease that will kill you. We should never get naked and vulnerable with a person only physically without getting naked and vulnerable with them in every other way, socially, economically, geographically, spiritually, and emotionally. And to do anything else sells this gift that God has given us short. Keep the fire within the marital fireplace and stoke that fire as hot as you can. So the question today is this. Sexually, what's the environment? What's the restriction? What's What's the hearth that best benefits us and liberates us if we confine ourselves to it? Just like water is a confinement to a fish. (laughs) What environment will help us to live the most free sexually? And the answer is love inside the walls of marriage. That's it. For a relationship to be healthy, there must be a mutual loss of independence. It's two people saying, I will adjust to you. I will change for you. I will serve you, even though it means sacrifice for me. And if only one party says that and does all the sacrificing and giving and the other does all the ordering and taking, then the relationship is exploitive and it will oppress and it will distort the lives of both people. That's not what marriage is. A marriage governed by love points to God. Here are two people saying, I will serve the other. Serving just like God in the most radical way has served us. Because God has done that for us. He has adjusted for us. In his incarnation, in his atonement, Jesus Christ has submitted to our condition as sinners and he has died in our place to forgive us. In the most profound way, God put boundaries on himself, boundaries of nails in hands and feet and said to us, I will adjust for you. I will change for you. I will serve you, even though it means sacrifice for me. And Christ limited himself so that God's love for me and for you could be expressed without limits. And sex is a picture of that. Sex is when we limit ourselves to the oneness of marriage so that Love can be expressed without limits. Paul writes it this way, the love of Christ constrains us. It's in 2 Corinthians 5.14. I'm gonna call the band up and as they come, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, uh, give you a question that was asked of C.S. Lewis. He was asked, is it easy to love God? And he replied this way, it's easy to those who do it. <laughs> That doesn't seem very helpful at, at the first. It's, it's pretty you know, paradoxical, but it's not as much as it sounds. Because we could ask it this way. Is it easy to stay faithful in marriage? It's kind of the same question. And the answer that C.S. Lewis would give it's, is that it's easy for those who do it. When you fall deeply in love with someone else, 
you want to please that person that you've fallen for. You don't wait for them to ask to do something for them. You, you go, guys, do you remember that? Do you remember when you fell in love? Do you remember when she walked in front of you and you decided, I'm going to learn all about her so that I can make her happy, so that I can bring her pleasure. And so you went out and you got whatever that was, whether it cost you a lot of money or it cost you great inconvenience. Your motto was, your wish is my command. And it didn't feel oppressive at all because it was out of love. Your friends from the outside looked in and said, you are an idiot. She is leading you around by the nose. But that's not the way it felt to you. To you, it was heaven. And for a Christian, it's the same with Jesus. The love of Christ constrains us. It's this environment that we're limited to of love that allows us to be the most free and to jump out of that into that you might as well be a fish jumping out of the water father we thank you that all pleasure is from you it's all a gift all good gifts come from the father of lights that's what james says and they're all pointers to the ultimate pleasures in heaven that we will one day be a part of Father, we pray today that instead of keeping people from God, that this area of sex and sexuality would draw people closer to you. That it would point to the greater reality, the greater joy to come, the all-encompassing eternal love from the Father. And we thank you that Jesus has made this a hope for our future. And it's in Jesus' name, the bridegroom of the church, that we pray and everybody says, amen. Would you stand?